Okay, so welcome back to another lecture on contract law. I think I'm probably going to stop giving the number of the lectures since I'm losing track of them myself. But if I'm correct, I think this is number 10 in the series. And we're still looking at the rules on consideration. So again, just to get our bearings, consideration is one of the conditions that needs to be satisfied in order for there to be a legally binding contract. It's part of what I am calling the basic rule of contract law. And it's one of the things that distinguishes agreements in general from contractual agreements. Consideration is the benefit or detriment accrued on either side of a contractual agreement, or it is the value exchanged between the parties to a contract. Ordinarily, consideration is monetary in nature, so you do an action to provide a good that is quantified in monetary terms, and you get a payment for that. Sometimes there are other forms of consideration provided, and we looked at the case law as to what counts in the eyes of the law as sufficient consideration. In the most recent lecture, we were looking at the troubling intersection or confusing intersection between the performance of pre-existing legal duties and the rules on consideration. And the basic rule of thumb here is that if you agree to perform something that you already have a legal duty to perform, that cannot count in law as sufficient consideration, but there are complexities to this. And we actually concluded the last day by looking at probably the most controversial modern authority in relation to consideration and pre-existing legal duties, the case of Williams v. Roffey Brothers, which seems to suggest that a promise to perform a pre-existing contractual duty can suffice, can be sufficient consideration in the eyes of the law, provided that it provides a practical benefit to the other party and has not been procured or obtained due to duress or coercion. So this lecture, we're very much going to follow up on that and see whether that idea in Williams v. Rafi is in fact good law. And we're going to do that by looking at a third class of cases involving pre-existing legal duties, namely cases involving the part payment of a debt. So a debt in the eyes of the law is a sum of money that you're legally obliged to pay. So can the part payment of a debt ever amount to sufficient consideration in the eyes of the law? And you can think about this as the flip side to the other cases that I was discussing the last day about the performance of a pre-existing contractual duty. In those cases, I was looking at the performance of some action under a contract. Here I'm looking really at the payment of monies under the terms of a contract. Although to be clear, debts can arise for other reasons too. So you, you could have a debt to pay tax, for example. But most of these cases tend to involve pre-existing contracts. So, you know, using your common sense, you should probably reach an obvious conclusion here, which is that payment of part of a debt that you already owe can't be, a promise to pay a part of a debt can't be sufficient consideration. And you should trust your common sense in this regard. That's basically the position that the law adopts. And the classic rule here is the rule from a case from 1602 called Pinnell's case. And this is often cited in even modern case law. So what happened in Pinnell's case? So the facts are that you had a man called Cole who owed money to Pinnell, and he owed Pinnell a debt of £8.10, shillings, which I'll just emphasize for you all is a lot of money back in 1602. Cole tells the court that he has paid Pinnell £5.2.6 shillings and sixpence before the debt was due, and that Pinnell had accepted this in full satisfaction 
of the debt. Pinnell then sued Cole for the outstanding sum of money. Cole obviously rejects this and says, look, we reached an agreement where I'd pay him less before the due date of the debt. But the court rejects Cole's case and says the following, and I'm now going to quote directly from the judgment. They say that the payment of a lesser sum on the day in satisfaction of a greater cannot be any satisfaction for the whole because it appears to the judges that by no possibility a lesser sum can be a satisfaction to the plaintiff for a greater sum. That said, the gift of a horse, a hawk, or a robe in satisfaction is good, for it shall be intended that a horse, a hawk, or a robe might be more beneficial to the plaintiff than the money. So this is the passage from this judgment that's always cited, and it's not particularly clear from that passage what the rule in Pinnell's case is. There's a couple of things we can say for sure. We can say that the court has decided here that paying part of the sum due on the date that it is due is not sufficient consideration. That makes sense. Payment in kind, so not using money, but using some other good, like a a horse, a hawk, or a robe. Odd choice of examples, I guess it was more pertinent and relevant back in 1602. That can be sufficient consideration because those items, those goods, might be more beneficial to somebody than money. But then, what about the actual facts of Pinnell's case? Where Pinnell, or rather Cole, had paid Pinnell money before the due date of the debt, and he didn't make any payment in kind. Could that be sufficient consideration? Well, you'd have to say that the answer is no, because the verdict in this case seems to have been that Pinnell was entitled to the full sum of money, and that Cole couldn't satisfy the debt to Pinnell just by paying part of it before the due date. But, you know, if you think about this a bit more critically and reflectively, you might say that the payment of a sum of money before the due date might be sufficient consideration, since, again, thinking about Williams v. Roffey, it's a practical benefit for somebody to get money sooner rather than later. So, for example, if I had sold you my car on the terms of a deal whereby you would pay me the full sum of money in 12 months' time, if you turned around and said, look, I'll pay you 80% of the sum of money tomorrow, I might agree to that, and I think that's probably a good deal from my perspective. It's good to get money sooner rather than later, especially given that money depreciates in value over time, given the kind of monetary system that we have. But what do the courts think about this? And this is where we run into some confusion. So the leading more modern authority, and I'm not saying it's particularly recent, but it's more modern than Pinnell's case, is a case called Folks versus Beer, which is an 1884 English case. So the facts of this case are as follows. The defendant, Beer, obtained a judgment against Dr. Folks, the plaintiff, for around £2,000 at an interest rate of 4%. So, under the terms of this judgment, it's court-ordered judgment, Dr. Folks owes Beer this sum of money, and there's interest charged on this debt over time as well. So, Folks is having trouble paying this sum of money to Beer, and asks for more time, and Beer, being generous, agrees to a revised payment structure. She tells Dr. Folks that she's going to accept £500 payment up front, and then she would accept twice-yearly payments of £150 until the total sum of money was paid off. So that was agreeable to Dr. Folks. He paid off the money, uh, but he never paid the interest that was part of the original judgment, the 4% interest rate. And Beer sued for payment of that sum of money. 
Folks argued, look, we entered into this revised payment structure. We never mentioned anything about interest payments under this revised agreement. So the assumption was that Beer had waived her right to the interest payments. And she was bound by the terms of this new repayment schedule, because that was, an, in a sense, a contract that had been, or agreement that had been entered into by the two of them. And he had provided fresh consideration for this by agreeing to this new schedule of repayments. Now, the judgment in this case is reasonably clear, at least in terms of the conclusion, which is that folks could not enforce this deal and that Beer was entitled to the interest payments because folks had not provided no fresh consideration. He was just paying off a sum of money that he was already legally obliged to pay off. And so you can't provide consideration by agreeing to pay off what you've already, what you are already legally obliged to pay off. Now, the Lord Chancellor, Selburn, was very clear in his judgment in this case. He says the following. He said that the plaintiff, Dr. Folks, was under an antecedent obligation and payment at those deferred dates by the forbearance and indulgence of the creditor, Mrs. Beer, could not, in my opinion, be a consideration for the relinquishment of interest and a discharge of the judgment. So to translate that into ordinary English, what he's saying is that the part payment of a debt under a revised schedule of payments, that was all agreed to at the indulgence of Mrs. Beer, but she had no legal obligation to accept that revised payment schedule and a lesser sum in discharge of the amount that she was owed under the terms of the judgment. So that seems clear enough, but then some of the other judges in Folks v. Beer seem to suggest that part payment of a debt before the due date of the debt might be sufficient consideration. So Lord Justice Blackburn, who we have encountered a few times in this course already, most famously in the first case we discussed, Smith v. Hughes, said the following in his judgment, My conviction is that all men of business, whether merchants or tradesmen, do every day recognize and act on the ground that prompt payment of a part of their demand may be more beneficial to them than it would be to insist on their rights and enforce the payment of the whole. So he recognizes the practical commercial advantage of accepting part payment of a debt and seems to hint then that that might give rise to an enforceable contract. But he does go on in his judgment to say that, well, there wasn't any consideration of that form here. It wasn't prompt payment. In fact, it was maybe less prompt and was just a revised schedule of payments. So the comment is overture. It doesn't apply to the facts of this particular case, but it is suggestive that the judicial opinion, even back in the late 1800s, was that the part payment of a debt might, under certain circumstances, amount to sufficient consideration. But what we really want to consider here is the intersection between this rule on part payment of debt and Williams v. Roffey. Is there any effect of the judgment in Williams v. Roffey on the Folks v. Beer line of authority? Bearing in mind, again, that there is a difference between the two cases in terms of the basic facts, which is Folks v. Beer is about the part payment of a debt, whereas Williams v. Roffey is about the performance of a pre-existing contractual duty. And it seems that courts have decided that there isn't an intersection between them, which is that the practical benefit of the partial payment of a debt cannot provide sufficient consideration. And so there's an English case on this point called In Ray's Select Move. It's a 1995 decision. And the facts of the case are that Select Move owed a lot of money to the Inland Revenue, the tax authorities in the UK. 
the managing director of Select Move, met with officers from the Inland Revenue to reach some agreement on how they could pay this tax that was owed. The manager alleged that an agreement was reached whereby Select Move would pay all future tax on the due date and would also pay off the arrears of the tax that they owed at a rate of £1,000 per month. But at a later point in time, Inland Revenue claimed for payment of the full amount of arrears. The verdict in this case is that the testimony from the manager of the company that there was this agreement with Inland Revenue might have been fraudulent or false, that there may never have been such an agreement reached. But they also decided that if such an agreement had been reached, it would have been an unenforceable agreement due to a lack of consideration provided by SelectMove. They were already legally obliged to pay the money. And in reaching this verdict, the court made very clear that the rule in Williams v. Roffey about practical benefit could not apply or did not apply to cases involving the part payment of a debt. So that seems to limit the scope of the Williams v. Roffey rule, which, as I mentioned in the previous lecture, has met with some judicial discord. Quite a number of judges are unhappy with this authority. And it's worth noting that the Select Move authority has been followed in Ireland. So there's a case from 1996 in Ireland, just a year after Select Move was decided in England, called Truck and Machinery Sales Limited versus Marubeni Komatsu Limited, which followed the Select Move authority. Nevertheless, th- this kind of leaves us in what I mentioned earlier on as an unsatisfying position. Because the distinction between the scenario in Williams v. Rafi and the scenario in Folks v. Beer and Select Move is somewhat artificial. I mean, all these cases, in essence, involve the agreement to perform a pre-existing duty. So it's not clear why we should treat them separately or distinctly. And this is an area of the law that really needs to be cleaned up in some way. Because we have lots of cases that seem to contradict one another. You know, think back over all the cases we've discussed recently. Stilk v. Myrick, Hartley v. Ponsonby, Williams v. Roffey, Folks v. Beer. Just take those four cases, think about the verdicts in each of them, look through the notes and readings in relation to this topic, and you'll see that the verdicts in those cases are not fully consistent, and it's difficult to completely reconcile them. So we need to clear up what the legal position is. And a couple of years ago in the UK, there was a great moment of hope that we might actually clear up the confusion in relation to this area of law, because a case arose where, which seemed to put before the court this fundamental question as to whether Williams v. Rafi remained good law or not, and whether we needed to overrule other authorities like Folks v. Beer. And the case in question was Rock Advertising versus MWB Limited. So I was actually following this case for a number of years, running through the different verdicts that reached within it at different stages within the appeals court process. But we now do actually have a a final judgment in it by the UK Supreme Court from 2018, which is unfortunately not a very happy or satisfying judgment. And we'll see why in a moment. So the facts of the case, what are they? So basically what happened here is you have MWB leasing premises to Rock Advertising. Rock Advertising get into financial trouble, they fall into arrears with their rent, and in order to address this problem, they reached an oral agreement with 
representatives from MWB, whereby they would repay the rent due at a reduced rate for a few months and then pay back the additional sums at a later date. So, you know, in some ways this is a sensible arrangement. Rock advertising have short-term liquidity problems in their minds. They, they lack liquid cash, to use the financial or business jargon. But, you know, if things go well for them, they'll hopefully earn more money in the future and they'll be able to pay back more money at a future date. So to get them through this short-term liquidity pro- issue, they reach this agreement whereby they'll pay back less rent for a few months and then they'll pay back the sums due at a later stage. And you might say that's a practical benefit as well, by the way, to MWB because they get to keep their tenant in place, they get some money, they don't have to expend money looking for a new tenant for this premises. So this agreement was reached, Rock Advertising followed through on it, they started making these reduced payments for a couple of months, then they kind of fell into trouble again, and MWB excluded them from the premises due to a failure to pay back the full sum of money owed, the full rent owed. Rock then countersued MWB, saying that this attempt to exclude them from the premises was in violation of the oral agreement for the changed schedule of repayments that they had reached with the representatives from MWB. So there were actually two issues then that arose in this case. One issue was that the original lease agreement between MWB and Rock Advertising included within it something called a no oral modification clause. So in essence, it meant that you couldn't modify the lease through an oral agreement only, you would have to modify it through a written agreement. And the question arose then as to whether that no oral modification clause was valid, and would that thereby negate this oral agreement reached between Rock and MWB about the repayment schedule for the rent. Another issue that arose in the case was the consideration issue. Was any consideration provided by Rock Advertising for the changed schedule of repayments? So this case generated a lot of excitement when it reached the Court of Appeal in the UK, because Lord Justice Kitchen, in a verdict, held that the no oral modification clause was invalid. And now you might wonder, why is it invalid? Why can't you include a clause like that within a contract? And there's actually an interesting argument here, which is that having a clause like that in a contract is contrary to two things. One, basic rules about the freedom of contract, which is that parties should be free to vary the terms of their contracts if they see fit and if it's agreed between them. And also, there's a long-standing common law rule, which is that there are, in general, no formal requirements for the conclusion of a contract. You don't need to verify or write down every contract. You can conclude contracts through oral agreement only. So it was felt that no oral modification clauses were contrary to these long-standing principles of the English common law of contracts and also rules that apply in other common law jurisdictions. So that's interesting. That's a, a verdict or conclusion reached by appealing directly to what appear to be the rationales underlying the rules of contract law. The other conclusion that Lord Justice Kitchen reached was that the promise to change the repayment schedule was very similar to the agreement reached in Williams v. Roffey, and that Williams v. Roffey was good law and should apply to this case. So there was a practical benefit to the changed schedule of repayments, and that was sufficient consideration. 
So look, even if you disagree with the outcome of this case, one virtue of Kitchen's judgment is that it does appear to clear up the confusion in relation to consideration of pre-existing duties. It suggests pretty clearly that Williams v. Roffey is good law and the practical benefit idea has to be taken seriously. And I mean, to go even further, you could link this back and say this is, in a sense, a victory for Lord Denning's approach in Ward v. Byam, which is that a, you know, a promise to perform a pre-existing duty should be sufficient consideration, provided it is not procured through some kind of coercion or duress. But then this judgment was appealed to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court reached a decision that really poured quite some cold water on Justice Kitchen's or Justice Kitchen's verdict in the Court of Appeal. So Lord Justice Sumption in the Supreme Court reached the conclusion that the no oral modification clause was valid and contrary to what Kitchen says did not contradict some basic principles or rationales of contract law. In particular it didn't violate the freedom or autonomy of forming contracts because parties are still perfectly free to modify their contracts, it's just that they had to do so in writing. So look, I guess if you included a term within a contract saying that it is impossible or forbidden to ever modify the terms of this contract, that would be contrary to some fundamental rationale underlying contract law about respecting the freedom of the parties. But the no oral modification clause doesn't go that far. It's just a small block on renegotiating the terms of a contract. You just have to do it in a more formal way and reduce the modification to writing. And then because he reached that verdict that the no oral modification clause was valid, that meant that the agreement reached between Rock Advertising and NWB about the repayment of rent was invalid. And so it was unnecessary to address the consideration issue in this case. The court didn't need to go there. And as a general rule of thumb, courts won't decide legal issues when they don't need to decide them. That said, Lord Justice Assumption was conscious of the fact that the failure to decide this point was a bit of an issue, and in the final paragraph of his judgment, he said that he or expressed some doubts and concerns about the rule in Williams v. Roffey and the continued authority of the Fuchs v. Beer decision. So uh, I would encourage you to read this entire judgment, and I've put the text of it up on Blackboard. But I will just quote from the last paragraph of the judgment, and this isn't the entire paragraph, this is just part of it. So what Lord Justice Assumption says is that that, as in the conclusion in relation to the validity of the no oral modification clause, makes it unnecessary to deal with consideration. It is also, I think, undesirable to do so. The issue is a difficult one. The reality is that any decision on this point is likely to involve a re-examination of the decision in Folks v. Beer. It is probably ripe for re-examination, but if it is to be overruled, or if its effect to be substantially modified, it should be done before an enlarged panel of the court, and in a case where the decision would be more than obiter dictum. So look, my reading of that is that Lord Justice Assumption is sceptical about Williams v. Roffey, and there's a bit of the final paragraph that I left out where you see that skepticism a bit more clearly. But he does agree that the law in this area is a bit of a mess and should be addressed, but it just shouldn't be addressed in this particular case. It really should be a much larger panel of judges in the Supreme Court, English Supreme Court, that address this point. So unfortunately, you could say there's a bit of chickening out here, although 
the legal validity of the judgment reached by Lord Sumption, I think, is probably fairly robust. But nevertheless, it leaves the law on consideration and pre-existing legal duties in a bit of a mess. So all I can really say about it is that Williams v. Roffey is a controversial authority. It's controversial in England. It's never been followed in Ireland. Judges have expressed doubts about it, although, as just noted there, Lord Just Kitchen seemed happy to apply it. And it really just remains to be seen if we get a case that raises issues similar to Williams v. Roffey before the appropriate courts, we might have a final resolution about it. But for the time being, if you do renegotiate the terms of a contract and you agree to perform a pre-existing duty or pay a pre-existing debt, and it is of practical benefit to the other party, there's really no guarantee that a court would endorse it. And I suspect the weight of authority seems to be against that idea, even if it is a standard commercial practice. Okay, I just want to make two final points then about consideration before wrapping up on this topic. One is just to do with the problem of duress and coercion in relation to the renegotiation of a contract and problems with consideration. So coercion and duress of contract, these are topics that we'll address later in the year, in the second semester. But there is sometimes a close relationship between decisions that appear to be about duress and coercion and cases that are about considerations. And one illustration of this is a a Northern Ireland case, actually, called DNC Builders versus Rees. So the facts of this case are that you have the DNC builders who are a small building firm who carry out work for the Reese family. Now, the Reese owed DNC builders about £500. DNC builders were described in the case as being in desperate financial straits. Being aware of this fact, Mrs. Reese offered to pay them about about £300 instead of the £500. DNC builders agreed to this payment, but they said they'd only agree to it if the Reese family would pay off the £200 outstanding within a year. But Mrs. Reese rejected this and said that they had to take £300 or nothing. DNC builders reluctantly agreed to accept the, later su- the lesser sum. But later on, they'd brought a case against the Reese family, and the Court of Appeal found in favour of DNC builders and the argument was on two grounds was that number one this agreement to pay a lesser sum didn't have sufficient consideration for it and even if it did it was an agreement procured through duress so effectively mrs reese had held dnc builders to ransom forcing their hand taking advantage of their vulnerable financial position so you could argue here a little bit similar to the Stilk v. Myrick scenario, where the courts seem to have been concerned about the vulnerable or precarious position of the ship's captain. And then there's just one other point I want to make, which is that there is an exception to the rule about consideration. So ordinarily, in order for there to be a binding legal contract, there must be consideration, but there is one exceptional scenario, namely so-called contracts that are under seal. So you might be familiar with seals. They're Traditionally, they were like these wax prints put on documents that indicated who the document came from, almost like autographs or signatures of a sort. So the common law rule was that any contract that was evidenced under seal 
written down and formally sealed, did not require consideration. And the reasoning here was that the formality of the process, writing down the terms of the contract and affixing a seal to the document that evidenced the contract, ensured that people were acting in accordance with their agreed intentions. And so that classic exception to the rule on consideration does suggest, again, maybe in line with Lord Denning's ideas, that consideration isn't absolutely essential to a contract. Rather, consideration is a proxy for something else. It's a proxy of evidence for the seriousness of the intent between the parties, that they should be bound legally to this agreement. And that's an idea that we're actually going to encounter again later in the semester when we look at the doctrine or a set of rules in relation to intention to create legal relations. So we can park that idea for the time being. And despite what I've just said there, still the takeaway message from this set of lectures is that consideration is one of the key requirements for a binding legal contract, despite that potential exception. Okay, we shall leave it there. And in the next lecture, we're going to take up a set of rules that are related to consideration And this area is a little bit tricky, and the relationship between the rules on consideration and the next topic are sometimes stumbling blocks for students. And the next topic in question is the rules about promissory estoppel and contract law. So that might sound like a weird concept or weird phrase, quite an outdated linguistic label, but it'll all make sense in the next lecture.